0: All right. Welcome to it. Good to have you along. I was telling Chris Creston off air that I fired up the uh, sewing machine. And on Saturday morning and Sunday morning, I managed to, uh, you know, take a carve out some time as I drank my coffee and um, sit at the sewing machine, which I bought during the pandemic uh, so I could make masks. And I produced nine masks. It takes me a little bit of time. And every time I'd start a new mask, I would say to myself, I'm going to like take note of the time. And figure out how long it takes me to make this mask, which is quite intricate. Like, it's got the filter. I, I have the little nose clippy thing at the top so you can you don't fog up your glasses. I've got the filter um, pocket inside. So, inside the two cotton, uh, between the two cotton fabrics, you can put another, like, a coffee filter or some sort of filter in between if you're, you know, worried about yourself. Um, I don't know. I always forget. I start sewing and then I'm like, oh, I forgot to look at the time. So I don't know how long it takes me. Let's just say a long time. Longer than most, I'm sure. But I wanted to talk about masking because I don't understand. You know, those one of the things that I find really ridiculous, these anti-masking groups that are appearing all over the place and protesting. Chris, you and I pointed them out when they were going to ride the subway without masks. And one of the things that we thought was ridiculous was the fact that they're like holding up signs that say hugs over masks. So you're basically um, pushing two agendas, one that you don't want to wear a mask, and two that you don't want a physical distance as well, which makes absolutely no sense, makes you look incredibly selfish to me. But um, we do have a lot of mandatory masking policies all across the province. And here to talk about them, Maya Goldenberg, she's a professor at the University of Guelph, an expert in vaccine hesitancy. And the reason why we invited you on, Maya, and it's so good to have you on the show is that you've pointed out that some of these anti-maskers are actually partnering up with anti-vax
1: groups. That's right. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, These anti-mask groups, this is a relatively new movement just because we haven't masked until very recently. Uh, They're looking for guidance about how to amplify their message and how to... uh, get the attention they want around their cause and uh, anti-vaccine groups are a good resource for that. So it's been reported in the CBC that there's connections now between local uh, vaccine, anti-vaccine groups and local anti-mask groups.
0: So what are anti-mask groups learning from the anti-vaxxers?
1: Well, uh, it was noticed that uh, a lot of their techniques for amplifying their message are quite similar. Things like, um, being very selective about the data they report, We tend, even though this is a a political protest, there's a tendency to try to provide scientific evidence in support of your cause. So uh, anti-vaccine groups will do this. They'll pick out studies that show that vaccines maybe aren't so effective or aren't so safe. And they'll point to that and say, you see, there's, the the science is uh, in question around vaccines. Um, Even if it's it's been debunked. That's right. Well, the thing is, I mean, human uh, studies done on human organisms, uh, human organisms are complex enough that you're not going to get 100% consistency in your findings. So you might do 100 studies on vaccine safety, and 97 of them will show that they are safe and effective. But you might get those one or two outliers that, if they may not say that vaccines are unsafe, but they'll at least Raise some kind of question about whether whether they're as safe as people say. So the uh, the uh, political movements will point to those two studies and ignore the other 97 or 98. And and people that are trained in science know that you don't draw conclusions from one study because there are these outliers. You want to look at the body of evidence. So doing this thing of cherry picking. Uh, cherry picking one or two studies that have the minority view and ignoring the majority that says otherwise is is not a good demonstration of scientific literacy.
0: Right, and and the role of science is to question and then question again and continue to question. Mm-hmm. Correct.
1: Uh, that's right, um, and it, so it's okay to run these studies again and again, but it's it's misinfor it's misinforming the public if you're saying, look, there was this one study that showed that masks don't do much, let's say, to to, to block uh, uh, airborne droplets when there's a good uh, bulk of, of research. Actually, I should say, in this case, we don't have a bulk of research yet because it's new, but there's at least uh, a stronger preponderance towards masking being effective.
0: How much of a cre- credence did uh, Dr. Tam give to these groups, uh, you know, their early days of saying, you know, we're not recommending masks?
1: Um Dr. Tam was was a little bit conservative about her recommendations around masking. And that might have been an error because you need to get uh, a very uh, clear message to the public. Uh, There wasn't a lot of studies on masking. There wasn't um, definitive research showing that masking um, protects us from uh, coronavirus. So I think she sort of recognized the ambiguity of the uncertainty of the research just because it was new and therefore was hesitant to tell the public that they should be masking. I think there was enough kind of social evidence in favor of masking uh, that that she could have made a stronger position. We've seen cultures that have, um, that that do masking regularly, uh, countries that were um, adopted masking after SARS, um, have done quite well in terms of coronavirus response just because masking was already a norm. We've seen that in Taiwan, uh, Japan, um, uh, many countries uh, in, in the uh, Asian countries already have this culture in place, and they've done pretty well. So even though we don't know exactly whether Canada will have the same positive response for masking, it's a fairly low intervention in terms of bother and cost and uh, and. Uh, interfering with our lives that i think dr tam could have been stronger about that and unfortunately by not being strong on that it's fodder to the mask resistors who can say you see even our Mm -hmm. chief public health officer isn't strong or has changed her mind a few times on that so it it created a little bit of politics that was i'm surely surely unintended but it happened anyway
0: what i find is you know ironic about this is they will use you know the government um and science when it when it seems convenient to defend their position but they um anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers as you pointed out they they show a share a mistrust of government and scientific authorities
1: that's right um and because of that they you know they have a political message and they'll use the resources that are available to them to promote that and that will include a little bit of government uh, referring to uh scientific expertise if anything to show that there's disagreement uh and they will refer to the scientific studies that at least um obscure what the sort of consensus position is so yeah they're they're picking and choosing there
0: right so they're also downplaying how bad this infectious disease is is there any you know what kind of strategies can uh you know government officials public health officials employ to make sure that these uh, anti-maskers, along with anti-vaxxers, don't get the upper hand here, don't um, convince people, um, uh, you know, that they're on the right side um, by fueling mistrust in the messaging?
1: Um, the best thing uh, uh, public health agencies can do is uh, repeat uh, their directives clearly. Uh, it's okay to try to debunk the misinformation, but there's always the risk um, That by pointing to misinformation and saying this is why it's not true that, uh, let's say, uh, that uh, masks cause uh, immunodeficiency in children, sometimes people hear that message. They hear the misinformation that they're trying to counter. So there's been communications research on this, especially around vaccines. Is instead of repeating the thing that was wrong, just give the narrative of what is right. Here's the clear message. Make it very um, widely available and very uh, and, and very um, easy to understand. Uh, people go looking for alternative um, accounts of what's going on when they're not sure that the trusted source, let's say the mainstream public health message. Is consistent. They somehow feel that there's some information lacking. So, um, when public health agencies communicate often to the public and give give consistent and clear directives and justify their claims, uh, the public tends to go along with it. And we've been seeing that around uh, around co- coronavirus response. The misinformation is not yet taking over the the, the standard narrative of to respond to
0: coronavirus we've had listeners call in talking about how they know someone either it's a really good friend of theirs or a family member that are starting to believe the misinformation that's being spread by anti-maskers what's your recommendation on how you handle your friends and your loved ones because you know, we all want to make sure that this pandemic um is handled responsibly but you also want to make sure your your relationships remain intact
1: the, the answer to that is is to try to have respectful conversations with uh, your friends. Uh, it's certainly not the right thing to get frustrated with them, tell them they're wrong, send them fifteen studies showing them how they're wrong. That's how people get defensive. Um, it's it's a common thing to do to get frustrated and to react that way, but um, nobody responds well when they're told they're wrong or they're stupid or anything like that. So a, a good way, uh, there's been some communications research around vaccine hesitancy that says, they're, they're very small interventions. You say things like, um, uh, I know you're concerned, you, you find common ground, like in the case of vaccines, we all love our children and we want to do what's best for our children. And you build from there. You try to get an understanding of where their hesitancy lies. Um, it's not always directly about the scientific claims, but there might be uh, broader uncertainty and um, fear around new technologies and especially around this pandemic that we're in. Uh, so it's, it's good to try to figure out where where the mistrust and, and, and unease is coming from and try to address that instead of trying to debunk every pseudoscientific claim that they make.
0: Professor Goldenberg, thank you so much for the advice. And, and uh, it's been a, an interesting chat. I really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure.